Brittany Ross, and I play the fiddle. I'm Catherine Flincham, and I play the pipe. And together, we are Fiddle and Pipe. Two classical musicians who are reading and discussing topics beyond the staff. So grab a book, take a seat, and tune in. Hi, I'm Brittany Ross. And I'm Catherine Flincham. And this is Fiddle and Pipe. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us. This is episode two. Actually, this is the redo of episode two. What happened, Brittany? You see, what happened was I <laughs> recorded my track, because we record remotely because we live in different places, uh, with the volume off on my microphone. Mm-hmm. So we had an hour and a half of material that's just gone. <laughs> Very sad. <laughs> now I have to redo the whole episode. <laughs> Uh, I just, you know, it happens. It's fine. It's uh, fine. Is your volume up, Brittany? I don't know. Is it? <laughs> I can hear you perfectly fine. Uh, well, we did a test. We're gonna start doing tests. We learned early on. Let's just say that. Well, I'm really glad it happened with just the two of us instead of like when we brought someone on because then yeah. we'd be like scrambling to have that person back on. Hey, can you do this? Again? Other than that, how has your day been so far? I played a wedding gig. Actually, I thought it was going to rain on me. Oh, well, yeah, because it rains in Georgia. We had, (laughs) yes, we had a bunch of rain earlier today. And I was like, oh, gosh. And then I went there and it was beautiful. The sun was shining. The air was romantic. And I'm like, yes, we can work with this. (laughs) (laughs) The air was romantic. It's a wedding. During this ceremony, it started thundering. I was playing with a guitarist. It started thundering, and then you know how sometimes when it rains, it doesn't just pour out rain, it's just like a couple drops? Mm-hmm. That's what it started doing, like a drop landed on my fiddle, a drop landed on his guitar, and I could see him looking over at me. Anxiety. And I was also looking at him. Anxiety. Yeah. Because I don't know, if it started pouring, I don't know what we would have done. Just like scramble I, for cover. I would have freaked yeah. out and been like, no. I would put my flute inside my clothes and save it. I don't want anything to, like, touch it. It was just, oh, it was very nerve-wracking. Uh, but other than that, my day's been very chill. How was your day? Besides me spam texting you about what I thought was wrong with my track. <laughs> well, well, other than that, I went to work and I, I made some coffee. When I got home, I was like, okay, I want to work out. And I opened the windows and doors. It's really nice today. I think... It's starting to actually feel like spring in Colorado now. So Hmm. I have all my windows and doors open. And I was, like, telling my cat to, like, get up. Like, come on, get up, Lazy, because she just sleeps all the time. Look at the window. Look at the fresh air. You love it so much. But I felt really bad because, like, everywhere she was going, I was kind of following her. Like, it was unintentional, though, because... I was like, I need to clean up all the litter that you've tracked, and I need to make oh. the bed. And she was, like, on the bed. She was like, really? Like, she just got really <laughs> mad at me. And then she went back into the living room, and I had to, like, arrange my furniture so I have space to work out. And she was like, what is wrong with you? Like, she just started hissing at me <laughs> and running away. You weren't letting her have her peace. No, I wasn't. Whenever I work out, she usually likes to sit and stare at me, probably judging how terrible I am. She was just, like, not about it. She didn't want to watch she didn't want to be around me she's probably in the bedroom now like i hate this woman and i can't wait for dad to come home she loves my boyfriend if there's only one person on this earth that she cares about it's my boyfriend she doesn't care about anybody else doesn't she like you she tolerates me oh yeah that's a big difference with a cat i think in her world it's boxes woody everybody else but anyway so the inner game of music looking at the wrong notes oh my god (laughs) 
What a day. So we're doing chapters. We're doing chapters two and three. Two and four. No, two and three. And four. (laughs) No, four is for another day. We're going to get real acquainted with these chapters. We are, because we've already done them. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm over this. I'm over this. I'm sorry. Now I'm laughing weird. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're thinking about it too much. If you're still listening to us, thank you. So chapter two starts with the two games. It discusses the outer game and the inner game, which I Mm -hmm. think we talked about last episode. Well, yeah, they were introduced. So the outer game, anything outside the body. Inner game is obviously everything internal, uh, mentally. Mm -hmm. It says it's more subtle, harder to notice, and quicker to forget. Green says that the obstacles facing the inner game are endless. The book quotes concentration, nervousness, and self-doubt. And we had a whole conversation about it last time, but it reminds me of a two-set violin video. Uh, that they Mm -hmm. just released on mental health. It's like a 20-minute video. We had a long discussion about it. We did, and I still need to watch this video. I've just been kind of like running around, so it's just been crazy for me. You brought up some really good points about mental health and musicians. And Yeah, the, the basic premise of the video was talking about how mental health wasn't really addressed in a school setting ever, and it plays such a big role in professional musicians and amateur musicians, and basically anyone who's an artist. It talks about depression, anxiety, burnout, and I think performance injuries too. The sad thing is, is that even if like we're going through it outside of music school, I'm pretty sure we're going through it also during music school. Especially during music school. Yeah, and of course like that not being offered or being as accessible, because I don't remember anything like that being offered when we were at KSU, but I just know that when I was at DU, I didn't know about the music psychology course until like literally we go by the quarter system at DU. I didn't know about this class until the last quarter of my master's. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like this was there. From what I remember, I think it was only offered like one quarter out of the year. And there's three quarters yeah. in a year. And I was just like, what? And I was man i was just kind of like what the heck and personally i felt like if i took this class i could have benefited so much about this like everything because i just remember in being in my master's like it was mentally exhausting not just physically but mentally and i like i'm gonna be very honest i don't remember much of it (laughs) yeah i would say that personally for me my graduate program was way more phys or mentally exhausting than physically exhausting Mm-hmm. Like, significantly. I'm going to be really honest. I just think it's a shame that it's not being more put out there in our education. I would be interested to see, with COVID being a thing, COVID's still around, unfortunately, and everyone being way more aware of mental health, and basically we have a mental health crisis here in the U.S., I'd be interested to see in, like, the next five to ten years if there if there are courses directed towards mental health with musicians i hope so and i think with people being more open about it and Mm -hmm. talking about it i think it will be i have hope for that i do have Mm -hmm. hope for that because it just needs to change we can't keep having the same conversations and wondering why we're not fixing things i I will be very open like i struggle with anxiety same here Uh, not like a crippling anxiety but i it's something i struggle with in my day-to-day life i picked up therapy in october 
this past October, and I'm kicking myself for not doing it sooner. 10 out of 10, best decision I've ever made. I'm kicking myself for leaving therapy last year at the beginning of the pandemic because Mm -hmm. I was more worried about my finances than I was anything else. And then that entire, like, I want to say 12-month period because I... I feel like I left around April. All it did was make my life mentally exhausting and it got worse. And now I'm back in it. I feel way, I mean, it's only been a very recent action I've taken, but Mm -hmm. I'm already like feeling a difference and noticing a difference. If you need help, like don't be afraid to seek it. And I feel like we could just make a whole separate episode on musicians and mental health because there's so much there. I mean- how mm-hmm. addiction runs rampant in musicians and artists like alcohol addiction, drug addiction, how people who are traumatized tend to go toward the arts, how people who have mental illness beyond anxiety and depression tend to veer towards mm-hmm. the arts. I feel like we can just make a whole separate episode on that alone. We should. So back to the inner game of music. Segue. Like the scooters. <laughs> <laughs> He talks about how both the inner game and the outer game heavily impact each other, which is is pretty obvious. Like how we were just talking how all these outside factors can affect your mental health, if if your mental health is the equivalent of your inner game. The problem occurs when you're only focusing on one game. So if you're like, man, I'm going to eat healthy, I'm going to exercise five times a week, but you're not going to think about your mental health, like you're going to be a struggling person. Yeah. And it's the same if you're like, oh, well, like, I'm going to take medication my psychiatrist recommends and I'm going to go to therapy. But you're like, you never exercise. You're severely overweight or underweight. You don't take care of your house. Like, all these things are going to pile up. It's going to add up one way or the other. You got to find that balance. So he says that the focus of the book is focusing on the inner game, which seems counterintuitive to what he just said. I guess he's assuming that you have your outer game figured out and the focus of the book is on the inner game. I think it's so much easier to focus on the outer game than it yeah, is the true. inner game. And that is like, for instance, winning an audition or a competition. You know, we have these goals set mm-hmm. and that's what we want. Just from my own experience, we're so focused on that goal that we're not really thinking about like the process. We're not thinking about yeah. anything that might get in our way mentally. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's why there's so much more focus of the inner game versus the outer. Yeah, and I think it's just sense. recognizing it. Like he's pointing it out more in writing of an entire book. Um, I guess I'm still on that mental health focus because I just kind of started transferring it towards physical health. But the outer game is mm-hmm. much more than physical health. It's literally everything that you can't control outside of your body. That's auditions. That's concerts. That's yeah. No, you have a your point. car. That's the food you're eating. It's, it's literally everything. Yeah. Barry Green says that the success of the inner game is often the deciding factor between success in outer game and failure. It's a little stark, but pretty honest. He also says that the inner game can be applied to all outer games. So for example, the same skills that you would learn to deal with the inner game of music also applies to the inner game of relationships and the inner game of carpentry. Are you becoming a carpenter? No, I just started thinking of houses and I'm like... (laughs) (laughs) So he says that your potential is equal to your natural abilities, capacities, and knowledge added together. You use your potential to overcome challenges in the real world. He talks about the concept of self-interference. He 
says that this is mental static that interferes with our natural ability. So I feel like this is like second guessing yourself, having anxiety, being fearful. Basically everything that gets in my head. Basically Catherine's brain. (laughs) My entire brain. (laughs) See synonyms, Catherine's brain. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Throughout the book, he talks about um, inner game basics. So this brings us to uh, inner game basics one, the performance equation. So it's capital P equals lowercase p minus I. P-P-I. Capital P is performance. The lowercase p is potential and the I is interference. So your performance equals your potential minus your interference. And he talks about improve your performance by reducing your interference instead of increasing your potential because I think your potential is more inherent. So you can't really increase it that much. So he's like, hey, you know, you can control your interference. So let's just take that and squish it into a little ball. And I think that's also why, like, I is the last part of that equation. Because if you take it out... Your performance equals your potential. Exactly. And that's what he said. Kind of neat concept. I know I cannot think about that. The stumbling block. Self-interference. He has this exercise section where he's talking about, do you remember the worst moment of your musical career? And what was the most painful, unpleasant musical experience that you had? I wrote down three, but one of my worst moments, actually all of them were in grad school, which I think tells you something. So my first jury that I had, I did okay. Like I figured out like a B, like I did okay. The next jury that I did the following semester, I got a C and my violin professor basically took me in to like have a conference with him because we talked to him after our juries and he was basically like, hey, you're not that good. You switched to viola. And I was like, oh, God. Tell violinists, like, hey, you know, if you're a bad violinist, you can always play viola. But that's a it's a joke. Dang. That's also, like, I feel like that's, like, a diss on viola. It is. It is. I love viola. And there's some great violists out there. And I'm just, like, sitting there. I'm like, damn, that's, like, a diss. Yeah, well, that's a joke. Like, have you ever heard of, what's the string quartet made of? A good violinist, a uh. bad violinist, a former violinist, and a cellist. Oh, God. <laughs> This is why I'm a wind player. <laughs> I'm a wind player. It was awful. I forgot exactly what happened. I was potentially looking at increasing my stay there for another semester, which was rough. So it was, uh, you know, not an ideal situation to be going to a grad school for a degree and then basically having your professor be like, hey, you're not that great. You should switch your instrument. I can see that because it's just like, well what am I doing? You know, it it just kind of makes you think that. It's like, what am I doing here? And why did I even want to do this? I thought I was like, good too, because I I had an assistantship. You know, out of everyone who auditioned, they chose me to give me money. And then he's telling me this. I'm like, oh, is he just trying to like, you know, light a fire under my ass? Or is he like, I don't know. Yeah, it was a strange and horrible experience to be in. I remember I called David, my then boyfriend, now husband, and I was crying and I was like, I might have to stay here another semester. I almost failed my jury and I like cried in the shower. It was, it was fun. It was a good time. And look at you now, though. I think you're doing pretty well. In my last year of grad school, I got to play Shostakovich Five, And I remember so excited because this was one of the pieces that really kind of inspired me to kind of really be more serious about music. It is a fantastic piece. I feel like it gets played a lot, but I like the story behind it. I like the music. I think what Shostakovich was writing really kind of reflects how he was feeling Mm -hmm. in some of those moments. It's a fantastic piece, and I 
remember I was working my butt off in the placement audition before that quarter because I was just like, you know, I want to do my best. This is my last year. You know, I want to show my professors that I, I have all these capabilities to be successful outside of music school. And I was able to play first principal on Shostakovich 5. And so I spent like that entire like concert cycle working on listening, just really studying that piece and that part. And then the concert comes and the third movement is a big, there's a lot of flute stuff going on, not just in the principal part, but in the second part. And there's one entrance that the principal flute comes in. I believe it's a C flat. <laughs> I don't remember. I need the part. <laughs> it's like a solo, and it's very beautiful, I think. I think it's very mm-hmm. somber-esque. Beforehand, when we were doing all these rehearsals, I was fine. I was great. Get to the concert. It's like it was a piano entrance, too. At that time, I had been so comfortable and proud of myself on my pianos in the higher register. And it just came out like a whisper. (laughs) It didn't come out clear or clean. And I was pissed. (laughs) I was like, in my head, my brain is going off. I was mad. I was angry. I was like, what the hell? Yeah. (laughs) I was, and I remember, I just, I couldn't stop. And so I just kept going. And I can't remember on top of my head, what exactly created that attack, Mm -hmm. no matter how set I was. Maybe it was because I had, like, a dry pocket in my lip or whatnot. Like, sometimes whenever I start solos, I get a little weird and tense in my mouth. Like, I might create extra spit or it might be a little dry in my mouth. Whatever. I don't know exactly what happened, but I just remember when I finished my phrase and I was able to rest, I could tell I was beet red. I could tell I was teary-eyed. I was so angry. And then, you know, after the concert, no matter how people were like, great job, and even my conductor acknowledged me, I went home and I cried. (laughs) Everyone was like, we want to go get drinks after this? I was like, no, I think I'm going to go home because I have to get up early because I have to go to work. Probably a lie. I just cried. I was so sad and I was really mad at myself. Yeah. I could probably go into the archives and listen to that recording. I think today now I'd probably be like, who cares? Do you think that if you listened back to it, it wouldn't have been as bad as you thought it was? Probably. And the sad thing is I haven't listened to it. I should probably see if I can go back into the archives and That'd be cool. access it. Yeah. But it's just easy to get caught up in the worst moments mm-hmm. in a performance, in your career. It's just easy to get caught up in that. They're definitely the moments that stick with you. Yes, exactly. And it's easy to get caught up in those negative moments versus great moments. And that's why it's hard to think about good performances and moments that show your progress and your like how you're thriving. Which brings us to his next point. His exercise was to remember the best moment of your music career. And I couldn't think of one like off the top of my head. It really took me time to think about it. Like I had good moments, but I can't sit there and be like, that's my defining moment right there. I feel like there's not really a defining moment for me personally. I feel like there are great milestones that I've had that I guess lead me one step further in my path. In your career. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I still have much more to learn and discover that might be great in the future. Yeah, well, that's the great thing about music is like you never stop learning. Most of my work yeah. these days is teaching, like pre- teaching privately with covid most of the other aspects of my stuff Mm kind of got 
shut down or put on hold. But I feel like I learn Mm -hmm. more almost when I'm teaching. I always try to think of different ways to explain things and different ways to approach a problem because it's not one size fits all. Like what sticks with one person is not going to stick with the next person. So if I have two students struggling at the yeah. same concept, the same thing is not going to resonate with them. Getting those critical thinking exactly. skills and thinking about how I can approach different solutions and problem solve has done wonders for like my playing because then I start attaching that mindset to my playing. I can relate mm. to this a lot. And a lot of the things that I do in my own practice when I practice my instrument, I like to play. I pra- Even when I didn't have crap going on um during COVID Mm -hmm. I was like I still want to play my instrument and I think it was because also like I had I I took a break before and then when COVID started everything just like shut down I was like well I'm home alone I have all this time let me play my instrument and I think everything that I invested in my own time as my Mm -hmm. in my own practice I I shared that knowledge and shared those experiences with my students for some of them it really worked for others it didn't. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, let's try something else. I think being a teacher has helped me, oh, like, yeah. has taught me a lot of yeah. things along the way. It's fun to teach. The takeaway is to try to get rid of the inner voice because that's hindering us. The next exercise is identifying self-interference. Identify the things that make you nervous and anxious in a music setting. For me, it was mm-hmm. forgetting music or part of an instrument somewhere or like leaving it behind. Whenever I'm going to a gig, I always double, triple check that I have my music. I'll be like backing out of my driveway and I'm like, wait, pump the brakes. Do I have my shoulder rest? And I'll literally turn my head, unzip my case, make sure I have the part that I'm worried about. And I've never left a part of my instrument somewhere. I think once in high school, I might have left my bow on the stand, but that's it. Oh, so this scarred me. In grad school, actually, David was uh, (laughs) visiting me and we did a concert at DePaul in Chicago. So we drove from Milwaukee to Chicago, which is like a two, three hour drive with traffic. And we were there and we're getting dressed and I forgot my top. I forgot black shirt. So I'm like, oh God, like what do I do? And I'm like scrambling around. We're in like the bathrooms of DePaul's concert hall. I had friends who basically like someone lent me a tank top that they could go without and then someone lent me a jacket and I'm like this is just gonna have to work that is terrifying (laughs) that also solidified my fear of forgetting something the rest of my things were a string breaking Mm -hmm. or falling out of tune mid-concert again never happened to me needing to stop and start over and solo stuff never happened to me messing up in general and then playing during a rest or not counting right that's happened to me a few times in orchestra concerts but never anything terrible I feel like that happens with a lot of people. I think that happens with everybody. Yeah. You know, I've done it before. And you know what? What were yours? (laughs) My first thing was failing. Anything and everything. (laughs) You know, I'm very hard on myself. I feel like this littlest Mm -hmm. of things can really get me. And I consider them failure. Cracking my notes. That's happened Mm -hmm. plenty of times in my life in concerts. You know, it just happens. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I'm in the moment and I get excited or if I'm a little nervous. I think it's Mm -hmm. kind of like a mix of both maybe. But, you know, it happens. Being out of tune, especially flat. I think we all have tunage problems. You know, and especially like we're learning. Dropping my sweat hands. <laughs> because I get really sweaty before I play, whether it's like a recital, even if I'm playing in someone's recital, I can get a little, a little sweaty in my hands, you know, a little clammy. So do it's you like grab feeling. your flute forcefully with two hands? Uh, no, I just kind of like wipe my hands <laughs> against my hands. 
I'm like, you're fine. You're Meanwhile, fine. you're sweating. You're like, sweat hands. <laughs> it's it's a real problem, y'all. Anyway. Oh, I worry about what other people are thinking in the audience. Especially, like, because I feel like there's always somebody out there that knows your part, that knows how you play, and they are judging you. And sometimes I feel like maybe they want me to fail. I let that mental block kind of affect me in many ways. I even did that in performance class. It would just be like, they're wanting me to fail. They yeah. know this excerpt. <laughs> I know this piece. <laughs> but I, it wasn't true. I feel like usually your peers oh, want God. you to succeed. I just, yeah. I was getting in my head. Falling on stage. Oh, especially when heels. heels. I love shoes. <laughs> I'm terrified of falling on stage wearing my cute shoes that I probably... Yeah, there, there's a reason why I don't usually wear heels on stage because <laughs> I'll suddenly forget how to walk in them. Somehow I wore heels way too much in grad school. I'd walked up a hill every single day from <laughs> my apartment to the music building. <laughs> the one hill in Denver every single in day. Heels. And um, well, now I haven't worn heels because where am I going? Forgetting my place that's happened plenty of times, even in my own master's recital. The music blows yeah. off my stand. I've also had that happen. And then just not playing good enough. When I was an audio grad, I listened to mm-hmm. a lot of recordings in my car, being a pizza delivery driver, which was great, but I think I would just depended so much on these like studio recordings that I was just like, they would get in my head and I'm like, I have to sound like this. And then when it doesn't come out that way, I would ultimately like be defeated. And you forget that these are not just one take like one and done studio recordings. Mm-hmm. Like if you mess exactly. up, you're like, hey, you know, can we hit that again from G? That was my list, folks. <laughs> um, he says it can be also applied to non-music, like what makes you anxious normally. So identifying that inner voice in other situations or your day-to-day life or whatever. The next exercise is noticing the effects of interference. So what effects does anxiety have on you in a musical setting, strictly speaking? For me, physically, it's like I get sweaty hand. I get sweat hands. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I I also sweat get hands. sweat hands um, and armpits too. Like I, I get really sweaty in the good old armpits. Oh, Always yeah. like double up on that deodorant yeah. if I'm in a stressful situation. Diarrhea and like poop urgency, definitely something that happens to me. Lack of appetite. The morning of my graduate recital, David was actually staying with me and he literally had to force me to eat half an English muffin. And worst case scenarios, I get really lightheaded. But that's few and far between uh my physical stuff i get hot yeah you are and i know i'm red i don't know if it's because i have a very fair complexion or it's just the way that i am but i can tell when i'm embarrassed and i can tell when i'm feeling nervous because i am red it feels very hot on my face and i know i'm red because people have told me this before (laughs) i feel like noticing that probably makes you more nervous or embarrassed or whatever yeah oh yeah I'm pretty sure I turn a nice shade of magenta by the time I realize that people tell it oh, wow. to me. And I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks thanks for that. Fine. Thanks, everybody. But yes, I get clammy sweat, sweat hands. Um, I put clammy on there. <laughs> this first. is just to emphasize the fact that they're not only sweat hands, but they are clammy sweat hands. <laughs> I don't know what he calls me a clam. <laughs> Is it because you have clammy sweat hands? I don't know. Maybe. I think it's just because he likes the word. <laughs> I don't know. He'll just call me a clam. And I'm like looking at him like, thanks. What? I feel really mm-hmm. shaky. And that's why I like drinking chamomile mm-hmm. tea before I play. So you fall asleep. Uh, even though it burns my tongue. <laughs> 
I think it just relaxes me a little bit. Like, I think it just kind of, like, helps me from the jitters. And I try to eat something a little bit nutritional, too, like a banana or, like, a protein bar. I love bananas, though. Like, that's my favorite fruit. I feel shallow breathing. It's really hard. Whenever I'm on stage, at least, I try to make sure that I breathe low. But when I'm really anxious, I don't breathe low. And I'm breathing more up in yeah. my chest. And it's really tense. And it just feels scary sometimes and i mentioned this earlier i get really spitty in my mouth i just start generating more saliva or sometimes it's dry yeah and i'm like on stage and i'm like <laughs> like i need a drink of water <laughs> i also get butterflies in my stomach sometimes especially before i play a part that is probably a little bit more showcased because obviously in orchestra settings you're not one of like how many violins it's like 20 30. Intersection. 20? <laughs> 20 okay. intersection. As a flute player, and this was something I just never really experienced as much when I was in high school until I got to college, but as a flute player, you're one of like three, sometimes four, depending on the orchestration. I just remember like being a solo, like you kind of have to act as a soloist no matter what part you're playing. Even though there might be like three flutes, you're, there's still sections where you're doing stuff different from the other flutes. Exactly. And so I get butterflies in my stomach and it's just, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, that happens. I usually get rushed thoughts. I start second-guessing everything or having, like, a general mm -hmm. lack of confidence. And I get into this circular thinking mindset where basically I'm just, like, thinking the same things over and over, even if they're addressed. When I'm playing in the moment, I kind of have this thought that says, wow, you're really doing it. And then I mess up. I tend to get caught up in the moment. And I think when I approach tricky sections, sometimes I'm like on an autopilot. And maybe that's like myself too talking mm -hmm. or in action. Mm -hmm. But then I feel like my self one comes in. It'll come in when I start thinking about that moment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen sometimes. And I think that self one's like, oh, don't mess up this part or... You got like, oh, you're really doing it. And then I mess up. And then I start thinking other things. And I'm just like, I want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> just want to go home and be with the cat that tolerates you. Hates me. Tolerates you. That tolerates mm -hmm. me. Tolerates me. Doesn't hate me. Tolerates me. We get to inner game basics too. Talking about self one and self two. So self one is your inner voice. Concepts of how things should and should not be. I can hear you flipping the pages of your mm -hmm. book. Yeah, because I'm following along to your outline. <laughs> My very thorough outline. <laughs> self two is essentially you. I quote, reservoir of potential natural talents and abilities, unlimited resources. Best performs alone without interference from self one. Self one is basically Catherine's mental struggles. It's true. He talks about how self one and self two should not be misconstrued as subconscious or anything like that, which I thought was pretty helpful because I was like, oh, okay. So like self one is like your subconscious and self one self two is your conscious but no no not like that self one interferes with your potential and self two expresses your potential i don't think i mentioned this last time but i kind of think of it as you know how you have like your two personalities like on on your shoulder like you see in cartoons, oh like the angel and the demon and, like, one is like yeah, yeah i think of it like that <laughs> i can see that that's how i kind of consider it your demon is the yourself mm -hmm. one your angel is yourself too the characteristics of self one basically it's just negative self-talk it predicts upcoming failures and successes, thinks about stuff heard from others. It's very distracting. Exercise one was getting acquainted with self one. It was talking back to yourself one out loud. Oh, yeah. And I did not do this because I was reading this while Woody was watching TV. And I didn't want him to be like, 
what the hell are you doing? Yeah, I didn't do this because I was reading in bed with David and I didn't just want to start talking about things out of context and make him think I was like going through something. <laughs> yeah, I kind of I when I when I was like reading this exercise, I was just like thinking like I think this is something that I can do on a daily basis and maybe even like mentally talk back. Personally, I think this is an exercise that we can all develop in our daily lives, mm-hmm. maybe. Not just doing it once and being like, okay. Because I, this book is great, but you don't have to just like, when you're reading in time, like follow the guidelines well, The now. exercise was just getting acquainted <laughs> with self one, So it's just recognizing yeah. that self one exists, not necessarily talking back to it. Green talks about how did self one get into the act? He states that around the age of nine, kids become more self-aware, which leads to mental interference. And personally, I think it's closer to 10 or 11. I think kids start getting a little more self-aware, but they're still not aware Mm -hmm. of situations around them, which usually makes you more self-aware. Yep. Self-one kind of creeps in like puberty. And that is what I wrote. Because, like, when you're around that age, that's when you start noticing things. You start caring about what others think and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I know that for me, at least, that's how I was thinking. I mean, I even noticed it in my own students. Yeah. When I watch them be little kids, they're so cute. And then they get older and they're, like, more aware of things. They absorb things a little bit more differently than they did prior yeah. to them being that age. It's it's interesting. It is to interesting watch. to watch. The characteristics of self too talks about nonverbal knowledge and basically it's just everything that you've known or sorry, everything that you know, that you've heard, that you've seen, etc. So it's basically like your whole life experiences, everything that you perceived, etc. Self too performs best in an unthinking state. It's referencing flow. What I think about it is when people talk about like a runner's high. The whole premise of a runner's high is basically um when you're running and you know how you're a runner. So when you're running, sometimes it feels like a chore. It feels like a laborious activity. And sometimes it feels great. A runner's high is basically when you kind of reach this like euphoric state where you're just very, you're very much in the moment. You're enjoying running. It's like not a chore at all. It's not laborious at all. It just seems so effortless. It's mm-hmm. all about flow. And that's kind of what I thought about. That makes a lot of Mm -hmm. sense, though. I get that. He talks about focusing less on self one's voice and choosing to ignore the quote unquote good advice of self one by choosing not to talk back to self one and by being more focused and present to drown out self one. Like think about it like background noise or, you know, when we were kids and our little siblings were bothering us. (laughs) Barry Green talks about relaxed concentration, uh, which is the master skill of the inner game. Reducing the effects of self-interference to guide us to an ideal state of being. It rouses your interest, increases awareness, discover or trust our resources and abilities. It will leave you feeling alert, relaxed, responsive, and focused. And he says it worked in tennis, so why not music? And I was like, okay, those are two very different things, but okay. (laughs) I do think having the goal of like having a runner's high or relaxed concentration, assuming that they are the same thing, is a good goal to have. To do things effortlessly, to maximize your experience of things. Yeah, and I feel like that's what kind of gets in the way of me personally. When I go running, I don't really think about anything. I mean, it makes sense because I don't really think about putting so much effort in running and it's kind of like why can't I do that with music that's what I'm thinking about right now I also thought about doing this but like meditating before I practice I've done it before and it has been pretty good I always feel like I just don't have enough time I did that a few times a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. I don't know I just I remember approaching my instrument completely differently and I didn't feel as anxious or like I don't have enough time and I'm thinking 
why can't I make this a daily thing or a frequent thing? So I get into the I don't have enough time trap when I'm thinking about exercise because I alternate mm-hmm. between running and weightlifting. And I'm like, oh man, I don't have enough time. But I'm like, okay, if I just run a 5K, that's like 25 or 30 minutes. That's not that yeah. long. I'm like, I'm probably going to be sitting here on the couch in 25 or 30 minutes. Like I can go running. It's not going to take time away from what I'm doing. Unless I really don't have time and I have, you know, a commitment at a certain time. Usually I do have time. It's just thinking about the effort to do that thing is really what's blocking me. Mm -hmm. So if I just break it into like, hey, this is how long it's going to take. Go do it. Then normally I can just go do it. So the intro of chapter three, he talks about what difference will this all make to the way I learn, play, or enjoy music. And I remember thinking this Almost exactly, because I was like, okay, these are great concepts, but am I really, you know, after I read this book, going to approach everything I do differently? But that's just probably me being skeptical of everything. I mean, I think it'll make us a little bit more aware about- Ah, I see what you did there. About how we're approaching things. That's how I'm taking it. And that's how I kind of see it with past things. Well, I guess like that were more recent things that have happened. Right. In my- music life. He says the opponent is ourselves. So basically the only thing stopping us is ourselves. Inner grain basics three, the P-E-L triangle. A lot of geometry here. So it's a three-sided triangle. I'm going to edit that out because all triangles are three sides. (laughs) (laughs) No, we should keep it. Yikes. The points of the triangle are one point is performance and achievement. The Second point is experience that includes enjoyment. And the third point is learning. It's like finding a balance. Basically how I kind of see it is like you have experience and learning on the bottom of the triangle and your performance on the top of the triangle. And how are like, you got to find a balance of all three of them. Mm-hmm. But basically you're learning new things. You're exper- like, and how are you experiencing it? How are you going to execute it in your performance? Yeah, that's how I kind of like perceived it. And I thought about that because recently I found out I didn't get into the finals of a National Flute Association competition that I have, that I worked towards for the last few months. Initially, I was really disappointed in myself. I've been doing this competition for years and I just never make the finals. But also there's like only three spots in the finals, which is fine. That's why it's called the finals. I was really disappointed in myself because I was like, this is my year. And I just didn't get it. And I was like, damn, yeah, not again. But when I thought about it, I was like, okay. And I think it was like recently, like after I read this chapter or while I was reading this chapter, (laughs) I was like, okay, I'm not going to beat myself anymore because I didn't make the finals of something that hundreds of flutists probably entered in. Right. Because this time around, I didn't spend endless hours every single day working on these four excerpts. I took a little small break. I wanted to feel refreshed. I approached my learning these excerpts a lot more differently than I had in years past. Mm -hmm. I thought that I played my absolute best that I've ever played these excerpts. And I was really proud of myself. I thought I did a really good job. And I was like, you know what, if I just like approach future auditions or competitions this way, even if I don't make it, Like, that doesn't mean anything that I'm a terrible player and I'll never make it in this world. I feel like, for me personally, I'm improving way more as a musician and a person, taking in the experience in a positive way and not a negative way where I'm like, I have to make this. I think that's a really healthy (laughs) way of looking at it. Yeah, I don't think it... I know I'm a decent musician. Just because I didn't make the finals and anything doesn't make 
me worse or any different. And I think this is where experience and learning really play into the performance. So it's like, okay, mm-hmm. it's not just about the performance. Like, what did you... Yeah, I, I learned so much more about the music. Yeah, I learned more not just about the music itself, but myself as a player. And I, I just approach things a lot more differently than I did in years past. He says to be aware of quality of experience what we are learning and how close we are to achieving goals. And all this is about Mm -hmm. receiving inner constructive feedback. Inner game basics. Four, awareness, will, and trust. (laughs) The out triangle. So awareness is your non-judgmental state to be more aware and open. Preconceived notions and perceptions tend to damage the end game. So this is all about approaching everything aware and with no rush to judgment. Will is the direction and intensity of your intention. Setting a goal, moving directly towards it, and then resetting sites when needed. So if, let's say you're trying to play a piece and, you know, you set a goal of, like, learning the first page of the piece. Well, okay, like, you learn the first page. What are you facing now? What are the obstacles now? So that's what it means by resetting sites. And trial and error based on feedback. Trust, allowing yourself to believe in simple awareness. So don't be a skeptic like me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) trust yourself (laughs) trust yourself just allow yourself to attempt to achieve this state he says accomplishing all the above will allow the three aspects to build off each other and you'll achieve relaxed concentration so these are essentially the building blocks to achieve that he discusses trying fails and awareness cures he talks about i'm gonna butcher this fritz pearls who is a gestalt psychologist I don't know what gestalt psychology is. Probably should have looked that up. Fritz Perls. Let's see. I'm Googling him. What he was saying in the book is the harder you try, the more confused things become. The gestalt therapy is to identify the form of psychotherapy that he developed in his life. So I guess he just coined the term. The basic takeaway of this is to just not be a try hard. Whenever you try especially a lot of emphasis on try to do things, you're automatically subconsciously doubting yourself. You're setting yourself up for failure. We have an exercise, trying versus awareness. <laughs> this is the drumming exercise. <laughs> Your favorite. I was not able to do this one because David and I usually read in bed together before we fall asleep. And I was reading this in bed and I didn't want to just start <laughs> well, <laughs> while he was like reading. Because again, I'd have another situation where he's like, what are you doing? And I didn't want to have to explain this all out. Alternate your hands fast, 16th notes. And the, it's harder when you try to do it. And it's easier when you're not trying and you're aware, self-aware. A trying state is like performance anxiety and doing things under pressure. And I think that this is why practicing sounds to, or sorry, sounds better oh. than performance. You know how many times I hear that from my students? When I practiced this, it was so much easier. And I'm like, yeah, because you're not performing in front of me. Because you're not, you don't have any pressure. You can do everything at your own leisure. Exactly. It's easy to get in our way. So then Green discusses having permission to fail. He talks about taking a mulligan, which I didn't know this because I'm not really that aware of golf. I love putt-putt, but I don't know much about golf-golf. I don't know. I don't know either. (laughs) So taking a mulligan is your first drive in golf when it doesn't count against you. So you basically just kind of like hit it and wherever it goes, wherever it goes, like you're not going to be counted minus points for not hitting the hole in a certain number of holes or putts. Well, it's the same thing if you're like doing like a recording session. For instance, you're like recording an excerpt for something. And if you do like a first trial run without 
the recording happening it's fine and I've done that plenty of times when I was practicing excerpts like I would just record my run-throughs in my own practice sessions knowing I'm not gonna send this mm-hmm. but then like when I get to the actual like okay I'm gonna record on this day sunlight doesn't sound good <laughs> yeah exactly and I think what I want to do in the future is kind of approach that differently instead of being like I have to record on this day (laughs) just like kind of wing it you know like because that's what I thought about after I submitted these recordings for this competition (laughs) (laughs) you're like I was like I should have just saved all the other ones that I made on tunable that's why I tell my students now um since everything or most things are virtual so they're having to Mm -hmm. do orchestra auditions virtually which means that they're recording themselves and sending in a tape or not we don't do tapes anymore sending in a file and Mm -hmm. i'm like take a bunch of recordings of yourself but just don't do it under pressure and then just pick the best one yeah exercise permission to fail i basically tell myself mistakes happen just let it happen and see how you can work through it Mm -hmm. and that's what i tell my students too i tell my students like hey if you have if you have to play this high note and you crack it crack it and that was something i actually like was inspired by by somebody on instagram that i find to be very inspiring but they mentioned it in a podcast another podcast that i was listening to (laughs) it was jolene flute if anybody on here is a flutist and knows jolene thank you jolene if you're listening i don't know if you are (laughs) but she mentioned something like that in a podcast and i was like wow i never thought about that and so i thought about that in my own practice I just noticed with my own student, they're afraid to play high F sharp because it's just this, it's a crappy note on flute. Yeah. I'm like, well, if you crack it, just crack it. I don't want you to be afraid of it. So if you play a wrong note, that's fine. Like identify it and let's see how we can work past this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I kind of think the same way in my own practicing. Yeah. My students do it a lot whenever they're learning two and three octave scales or doing like shifting for the first time. Because basically everything above fourth finger and first position is just the unknown, the stratosphere. So I'm definitely like, hey, you got to play this. And if it sucks, it's not that bad. And if it does, you know, end up being bad, then we can figure out how to make it better. Yeah, exactly. We talk about difficult tasks responding best to simple solutions. So doubt and anxiety create interference patterns. They block natural awareness and produce tension. Tension is something that we talk about in music. All the time. Yep. So if you perceive things as easy, it'll disrupt the cycle. So break actions into familiar patterns, find simple tasks and hard tasks. I think this is good advice for everything. If something feels overwhelming, you need to sit down and break it into manageable steps. Exactly. And that is something that I constantly have to work on. (laughs) (laughs) But you can work on it with a book. I can. The last exercise of this chapter is uh, trust easy and familiar. He has like a four beats of 16th note runs. And he's like, try to sing this or sight read it. And then he's like, okay, well, what if you saw it like this? And it just puts the black notes, the circles of the black notes um, under the music. And it shows like their general directions. Like that's how I actually see music. I live for this kind of thing with scales, with runs, all of it. Personally, I used to get caught up in just like every single note. And sometimes like, and sometimes I do in certain instances. I think about this a lot when I'm playing and I tell my students the same thing. Like it's just patterns. I know like my professor in undergrad 
did a lot of like, hey, this is like identifying patterns is really important and really helpful. Same here. Yeah, we had good education. But for those who maybe don't have that, if you are able to identify patterns in your playing, it's going to help you immensely. And music doesn't seem so scary anymore. The notes, like the ink doesn't feel so frightening. I know that's my past issue. And sometimes it is just depending on how crappy the edition is. Yeah. (laughs) Because I hate it when I just hate looking at music that looks like chicken scratch. But like, even if it's like a nice edition printed copy and there's just a bunch of ink on it, it can get a little intimidating. Mm -hmm. And I know for my students as well, they feel that way when they learn a new piece or a new exercise and there's just more notes on the page. Yeah, they're like, like, oh, it's fast. It's like, not necessarily. Not necessarily. And I'm like, let's kind of just dissect this a little bit into small sections and let's see what pattern is here. Yeah. What can we take out of this? Well, that brings us to the end of the chapter. We're done. Brittany, it's over. Yes. So next episode. It's over. (laughs) Next episode, we will focus on, I think, chapters four through seven. If you would like to reach out to us at all, please feel free to follow and message us on Instagram. My handle is at bmrossmusic. And mine is at catflintflute on Instagram. Well, I will be saying this, that we will be coming up with a Facebook group for open discussion. And that is in the works right now. Well, it was fantastic reading with you, as always, and audience. We will see. We will see you guys next week. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Yes, thank you for listening. Peace. Bye. (laughs)